This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living Catholic, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now your host, Father Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to another edition of Living Catholic. This is Father Don Wolf, pastor of St. Eugene in Oklahoma City. This last chance for this year to reflect a little on what it means to be living Catholic. It's also a time to reprise. And when we do, it doesn't take long looking back over the year that we've just passed and looking forward to the year to come where it quickly we get down to the important questions, the questions about the meaning of life. What is it all about? After all, if we're not headed in a particular direction, it doesn't matter where we're going. We're not getting any closer. And so it If we look back and try to discern or define the direction that we're a part of, very quickly we begin to ask ourselves where we fit into the universe. And you know, it doesn't take long before we start to ask whether indeed we're alone in the universe. That's the question that's pricked the imagination for generations. Or is it just us? Are there innumerable us's out there whose presence we can rightfully intuit by looking at the stars? And if they're out there, Why haven't they shown themselves? And why do we have to go on as if we're alone if we're not really alone? It may be worse than that, of course. Star Trek aside, there might be, what, billions of civilizations out there, but given the constraints of time and travel, we might not ever know of one another. We may be alone even in the midst of a universe crowded and full. Do you ever think of that? You know, there was a novel written several years ago called Contact by the famous astronomer Carl Sagan. The story unfolds when a dedicated scientist, Dr. Ellie Arroway, receives a radio message from our neighboring galaxy indicating intelligent life is there. She's made contact with those who live beyond our Earth, and that message, receiving that message, makes everything different. The movie has the virtue of being shorter than the book, so most of the philosophical reflections in the novel were eliminated, which is a good thing because Dr. Sagan may have been a really good scientist, but he was an exceedingly lousy philosopher. Anyway, the work was a bestseller, and the movie that was made from the book was a big hit. It seems we can't get enough fantasy about extraterrestrial life because it's our way into thinking about what terrestrial life really means, what our lives mean. This story, the story of the novel Contact, central concern was what such a discovery might mean to the average person. For Carl Sagan, it was simply a matter of fact. There has to be life out there among the stars, and it has to be superior to ours. Or as Dr. Arroway's father says to her when she's a child, if there's nobody else out there, It's a mighty big waste of space. If you think about untold millions and millions of galaxies with untold trillions of stars. Of course, if you think about it, all that space out there was necessary for a planet like ours to be formed around a sun like ours in order to have the properties our planet has, which makes the life we have here likely. It turns out that all that space seems to be exactly necessary what we have here. But all that aside, Sagan is convinced it's not a waste, but for another reason. He's convinced there really are other civilizations and other intelligences waiting for us to discover them. 
Not only that, he was convinced that if we just made contact with those other presences, our lives would be transformed. Wars would end, conflicts would come to an end, even religions would get along with one another. I suspect it's because he figured that they'd all religions would just abandon what they believed when they found out that there was life in Alpha Centauri, as if the notion of God wouldn't survive an outing in the Andromeda galaxy. All of this, he thought, would happen if we found out that we were not alone, if we could only join ourselves to the great project of life in the universe, we would be transformed. Now, if you think about it, I've never understood his thesis at all. Certainly, I've never agreed with it. It seems to me if we couldn't recognize the absolute value of life right here and right now, amidst the only place that we know for certain in the entire universe that life exists, then the chance that we'd be transformed by discovering that life exists somewhere else seems to be pretty slim. What would we think if we found out definitively that life did exist out there? What if it were proven? Rather than being ubiquitous and plentiful, what if the opposite were true, that life is absolutely rare and completely incapable of duplication from another place? Wouldn't we then be more likely to realize that our lives is the universe's greatest gift and it's something that we're not able to throw away or dispense with? I guess it wasn't for Carl Sagan. But the problem is obvious. He could look around just like anyone else and see that the world isn't coming together anytime soon. He thought unless something from the outside finds us and intervenes in the way we think and act, we're not suddenly going to realize our lives are precious and invaluable. Instead, we're going to go on killing and being killed with abandon and passion. Only if something absolutely different happens will there be any chance our civilization will change course and make its future more livable. Maybe aliens could do it. It seems like Carl never read anything called the New Testament, but, you know, that's for another time. You know, the other great theme of the story is belief. This is where the movie gets it right and the novel spins into incoherence. For the movie, it's the theme most worthy to pay attention to. As you will recall, Dr. Arroway is able to travel to the alien planet and talk with those responsible for the messages that's been received on Earth. But when she comes back, she has no way to prove that this trip actually took place. All she has is the urgency of her message and her insistence that the journey really happened. Everybody else is really skeptical. After all, nobody has anything but her testimony. There's no proof. The conundrum, of course, is obvious. She's a scientist, and without proof, there's nothing to go on other than the passion of her conviction. She's suddenly been thrust into the role of a proponent, not a scientist. All she can muster is the testimony of her own private experience. It's a delightful plot twist in the movie, and it goes to the heart of the claims of science and faith. And my favorite line in the movie, which doesn't appear in the book, comes from one of the minor characters. He's the leader of a faith-based organization lobbying in Washington for greater acceptance and understanding and a greater coherence between science and faith. He's also a former seminarian and has been romantically involved with the scientists. So when Dr. Arroway has been, been attacked by a group of legislators uh, and lobbyists, 
this, this individual is asked by a journalist whether he believes in her and her testimony or not. And he says this, she's bound by a different covenant than I. It's a terrific moment in the film, and it gets to the heart of the film's dynamic. Which will it be for our future, faith or science? And more importantly, what's the difference? And, in fact, is there a difference? Even more central to our future, does faith have a place at the table of our common humanity? You know, there's no end of fascination to the variety of poses these questions morph into. The most interesting genre is presented by, oh, uh, what's his name? Eric Von Daniken, the book he wrote called Chariot of the Gods. That was making the rounds of things when I was in high school, what, 45 years ago. He maintains, of course, that Earth was visited by aliens, which accounts for so much of the fantastic architecture at some of the great archaeological sites in the world. They were built by alien technology, he said, not by the people of the times. And I remember being fascinated by his claims and by the exotic places that he mentions in his book, sites in Egypt and Peru and Ecuador and India and Mexico, each one of which he assures us is the product of extraterrestrial life. Now, it's a little less, I'm a little less overwhelmed and overtaken with the exoticism of uh, those places since I've been to most of them. But his claims seem to be immortal, although his reputation has uh, only recently been rehabilitated. We are obsessed with the notion that we might not be alone. I'll take a little break here and come back. I'd like to mention our sponsor, McLaren's Pantry. You can call Kathy Busson there for your catering needs. She's at 3414 South Boulevard. Her number is 348-2336. Back in a moment. Welcome back, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. Father Don Wolf, pastor at St. Eugene in Oklahoma City, and we're asking the big question, are we alone, really? Von Daniken, Eric Von Daniken wrote his book, uh, Chariot of the Gods, a long time ago. His presumption is this, the fantastic projects we see at these great archaeological sites, they were impossible to imagine without some kind of outside help. Normal people could not have produced the artifacts that are of such colossal magnitude and stunning perfection unless alien technologies were involved. Our ancestors, he said, were just too primitive for such things. So pyramids and temples, even lines in the desert in Peru, were the products of intergalactic intelligence who stopped by to give us a hand. And the proof is right there in the sand, he says. Serious anthropologists and scientists, and not a few amateurs, rushed to check out the claims that he made in his book. Alas, beyond the mystery of the sites, there's no proof that there were aliens anywhere. Von Donikin's book makes a series of claims about things that he's seen and about inscriptions and objects that he can't produce or prove. In short, he's been shown to be a fraud. For the most part, he made all of it up. Yet despite all of the evidence to the contrary, we still buy his books, listen to his claims, and fantasize about his writings. It seems we can't get enough of his notion. We haven't done all of this on our own. We had to have had help from somewhere else. I've always been 
puzzled at the credulity in these matters. After all, if aliens did help our ancestors, why are we left looking at pyramids of carved stone instead of skyscrapers of gleaming metal? And did they help all of these civilizations all these years ago and then just cover up their presence here? And if they did, why would they? Or did they come, set up shop, and then go? Or are they something like the characters from a Star Trek movie who monitor new civilizations to see whether they're ready for contact or not? And if they're not, then they just move on. And all this being the case, we're left with fantasy that just won't go away. And by the way, the greatest technological achievements in all of human history have been solidly grounded in human efforts. And they are the fantastic achievements of the domestication of plants and animals for human prospering. Nobody, for example, knows how the Mesoamericans coaxed the corn plant out of its remote ancestors. The most productive grain in all the world was developed by the ancestors of the Central American Native Americans who had to guide these plants through, what, six stages of intermediate development with no promise of what it would yield, and yet they achieved it one of the most sublime accomplishments in human history. No geneticist currently active could produce such a prize. In the same vein, nobody knows how dogs or cattle or sheep or buffalo or swine or poultry were identified as targets for human prospering, and yet here they are among us all over the world. And the truth of the matter is this. Virtually all of the plants and animals in contemporary agriculture were domesticated in prehistoric times, and not one plant or animal has been domesticated since then. Yet nobody I know of claims that visitors from the stars came to Earth in order to give us burrows and peacocks and barley and camels and poodles. The most successful technology ever to appear on the face of the Earth is these products of human hands, hands that accomplish that what we cannot currently imagine being able to do. And yet, with all that being the case, somehow we presume aliens had to help our ancestors stack up stones for great pyramids. It doesn't seem to have occurred to us in our day and time an obvious truth. Technologies can be achieved and then lost. It's possible our ancestors knew things we do not know, and they could accomplish things that currently we can't even imagine. We presume that we're the apex of technological achievement on the face of the earth. When we're confronted with the achievement of our predecessors, we look at what they've done and we say to ourselves, they couldn't have done it on their own. It reminds me of the quote from the silly movie Men in Black when the minor character asks the major character about how their organization is financed, and he replies that aliens had given them the technology for Velcro and Viagra and microcircuits. And there's just enough goofy people somehow to imagine it might be true. Yet the sane people among us know that those things were invented and produced by the fertile minds of ordinary people. We didn't have to wait for a visit from the neighboring star to achieve that ripping sound when we take off our winter coats and the ta-da sound when we fire up our laptop. Maybe our ancestors were clever and inventive and driven enough to create the world we've found. Certainly, we're aware their brains were just as big as ours. They knew water ran downhill, and they certainly were aware that levers can move big rocks. Could it be they really were enough like us to get things done. It's kind of interesting. It 
appears that we're restless to believe in the most important story of all, that our lives contain within them intervention from beyond our lives. When faced with the choice between this is all there is, look around, or that there's infinitely more even if we can't see it, millions choose the latter option over the former. All there is seems to be an intolerable option. Every part of our civilization longs to hear a story in which hope is bigger than the world we see. If we are all that there is, if we're destined to be left within the limits of the world right here and right now, we feel doomed. The whole world in all of its fullness here and now isn't enough. Just go to the movies or read a few novels and you'll see we all long for something else. Carl Sagan's book became a bestseller precisely because he was writing about this deep longing. We long to hear the world is deeply complicated. We want to know that it's an infinitely dense place. And we want to know that meaning is waiting to be unlocked and understood. And since we can't find much sense in a scientific and economic world, the one we live in, we'll fantasize a world in which evil and good and life and death are lurking behind every event. Now, listen to that. We'll fantasize that there is a world like that if we can't find a world like that where we are. Thus, we have stories of witches and warlocks and wizards and stories of aliens and visitors and E.T., plus all the other stories that we have invented. The greatest, most popular genre in uh, what teenage literature has to do with fantasy worlds where people's decisions make a difference, where the things people decide and then do matter. The greatest journey in the world is finding out what's there and what we can do about it. It might sound comical when we describe it, and we may think of movies and TV programs about those themes as child's play, but they're on screen precisely because we want to watch them. The world has to make sense, and the sense it makes has to be something beyond what we see every day. If bigger than life doesn't exist, then life is just one thing after another. And if it's just that, then it's a gigantic waste of space. Which brings us to the end of the year, the last part where we're able to look back over our previous year and look forward to the year to come. And what we acknowledge when we do that is that we acknowledge Christ as king, king of the universe, king of our world, and king of our lives. That's the fulfillment of God's promise that Christ came to bring, that Christ is the king of things. Ultimately, it's this promise, we're not alone and we know it. As men and women of faith, we need not give our lives away to empty fantasy. We have only to live in the light of truth. We claim that Jesus is the king of all things. He comes as God's only son to bring us hope amidst the ruins and the challenges of our world. Rather than being an alien, he shares with us our truest and deepest humanity. What Christ is, is us. But he also lives as the promise of God outside of our world for the world. He brings us a story of how our world is lived beyond the here and now. Christ is the king of the world and of the universe. Now, pay attention. Jesus' story goes like this. The world was created in perfect order and harmony. Everything worked. 
But Adam and Eve's sin changed all that. And like a fine-tuned machine, the slightest fault can create the largest disaster. And so it was with the sin in Eden. Suddenly the world was off kilter and nothing worked. When the world was in chaos, everyone longed to have new order. The Old Testament is the journey of the recovery of Eden's order. And the great hope written there was simple. God would rescue us from chaos and bring the garden back. The fantasy that gets written are all restatement of the Old Testament desire to bring order and understanding by returning us to Eden where things worked perfectly. The New Testament is another type of promise. In Christ, we have a new world, but the world Christ brought us isn't anything like we imagine. We picture a new Eden where the good prosper, the world is well-ordered, and everything functions as it should. In short, we figure there should be some intervention to make things go as they should, be they elves or E.T. or fairies or spirits or sprites or angels or aliens. We long for them to rescue us from the chaos we've made for ourselves. But the promise of the New Testament is different. Jesus doesn't rescue us by promising us Eden. He rescues us by dying on the cross. He promises that our own dying, like his, is a moment when we understand the logic of God's love. When our lives are taken away from us, when chaos envelops us, it's then God's comprehensive love embraces us all. That's not Eden. Going back there would be like to... like pitching a tent in a cemetery. There's order and quiet, but not much is going to happen. Jesus' death is a whole new way to see the world. It's the greatest promise. Our crosses are exactly the place in which we find God's new creation. And the new world comes to us from inside our pain and suffering. Instead of waiting for a band of angels or for a flight of spaceships to save us, we turn to the invitation of Jesus' own words. He said to the good thief, This day you will be with me in paradise. In our crosses we share in the cross of Christ. There is our new world. We all want to be rescued. We all of us long not to be alone. And most of us think we're promised a new Eden. The truth of the matter is we're promised a new world. That's what we have to look forward to in the year to come. Back in a moment. to our final segment, Faith in Verse. We have a poem today called My Christmas Cards. I have my Christmas cards on my shelves standing aright, photos of the families who sent them, poised and bright, as reminders of the connections that have marked our years, memories and futures we hold close, hopeful and dear. Plus the usual scenes that mark this noted holiday time, marketed to us in mangers, presents, trees and starshine. There's Santa Claus, sleds and reindeers, fireplaces and mistletoe, churches with steeples, wooded lands and fir trees covered in snow, to remind us of winter months and this darkened time of year as a warming moment to hold our loved ones close, desired and dear. Not to mention the warning cards to keep Christ in Christmas so we don't err and leave Jesus out or make him less. But in all the flurry from the times and places of these days, There really are no better moments, no superior ways 
to celebrate Christ coming into a world of indifferent concerns than this confused holiday, hurried, misguided, and stern, where the coming of the Christ in humble glory ignored is what we so greatly celebrate as the gift of God toward the waiting world, so lost in darkness and bound so in sin, we find as we open the doors of our hearts shut tight within. So I look and see these simple cards and all their treasures. The eternal gift given comes to me beyond all measure. That's my Christmas cards. In the year to come, we'll have the chance to reflect on what it means to be living Catholic. We'll be on this station at this time. I hope you can join us then. Living Catholic is a production of Blue Cardinal Concepts, copyright 2015.